Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Today on The Nose, we went to see Creed 2, which is the latest in what you could sort of call the extended Rocky saga. We'll also talk about men doing bad things, which is something we seem to talk about a lot these days uh, on The Nose. In this case, the late director Bertolucci did bad things. Did a critic lose his job for not quite emphasizing those bad things enough and making jokes about them? And lastly, you know, we can't go more than three or four weeks without a Louis C.K. conversation. This This one's about a French woman who really seems to love him. And welcome to the nose. It's the end of the week, but it's the beginning of the nose. Uh, we've got a very exciting panel and a very exciting set of topics. Which should I talk about first? Well, today on the nose, the uh, death of the director Bernardo Bertolucci has triggered a whole series of other discussions, ranging from uh, the lack of informed consent in the infamous butter scene in Last Tango in Paris uh, to whether or not a critic much beloved of this show uh, should have been fired from another public radio show for a joke about said scene. We'll be talking about all of that. And, you know, basically, just in terms of a show like this one, we basically every two months we have to have a conversation about Louis C.K. I don't really know why that is, but we do. Now there's a French, <laughs> French woman who's in love with him. Their dairy practices, we don't want to know about. Um, but anyway, all of that is to come. And then we've also been to the movies to see Creed Two, which is sort of the second installment in the kind of extended Rocky universe, maybe we could say. Uh, we'll be talking about that as well. Now, who will we be talking with? Uh, uh, Teresa Kramer is a writer and uh, the editor of eContent magazine uh, and one of the earliest uh, Neolithic members of the nose, but then we don't have around that much anymore. Although mm-hmm. I guess you're around more now. That's good. That's a happy thing. Bill Usman is professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. And James Hanley is co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College. We'd like you to know that Cine Studio is screening Christopher Nolan's Interstellar uh, on 70 millimeter film. A rare chance to see a masterpiece in that format. Assuming you think Interstellar is a masterpiece, people can debate that one. Uh, but it would be really fun tonight because uh, Ron Mallett, who's a terrific guy, he's a UConn professor emeritus of physics, uh, often discussed as a possible Spike Lee movie in the works because uh, he is one of the physicists who feels as though there, he has a, a way of talking about the possibility of time travel. Uh, and so, and Ron's great. He'll be a lot of fun. So if you're going to see Interstellar, go tonight. And you get the 70 millimeter treatment and you get Ron Mallon. Also, uh, coming up on Thursday, ooh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to cut work for this because this does uh, appeal to me. Uh, it's a great thing to do. National Theater Live there at Trinity, Trinity Cine Studio at 2 p.m. Uh, Anthony and Cleopatra with Sophie Okonedo uh, and Rafe Fines. And uh, there'll be an encore performance on Sunday. I guess I could do that one instead. Uh, that's De- December 9th at 1 p.m. So that's really fun. You get to see National Theater live on a great big, huge screen. All right. So uh, with, uh, with that, 
I guess we're going to start with Bertolucci. Uh, and uh, so he died. So did a lot of other people this week. It's like a really bad week for people in the arts dying. Uh, Nicholas Rogue, also a fabulous director, um, died. Ricky Jay, uh, the uh, well, the magician and card shark, uh, died. Uh, the creator of SpongeBob died. It's a terrible week that way. But uh, so Bertolucci dies, uh, and it kind of re- resurrects something that had been talked about a little bit already, uh, which was this notorious scene uh, in Last Tango in Paris. Uh, this is the scene where how can I put it? How can I put it at all? Actually, <laughs> where uh, Maria Schneider, the character played by Maria Schneider, uh, has uh, an encounter not of her liking uh, uh, with uh, the character played by Marlon Brando. Well, I mean, they, I don't know. Turn the radio down. If there's kids in the car. So I don't know how else to say this, but he kind of initiates a not particularly welcome act of uh, anal penetration uh, assisted by butter from the refrigerator. I mean, there's no other way to talk about it. We just have to be grown-ups and say that. So, so James, this has become controversial because, in fact, as the years went by, Maria Schneider, who is now no longer with us, um, started talking about the fact that she just didn't see this coming. Right. I I think that, um, you know, one of the things about this whole affair is that it goes to the heart of um, sort of creating a performance in a film that is believable and that is real, which I think Bertolucci, in many ways, that's one of his great skills in many of his films, things like 1900 uh, and The Last Emperor, where there's there's a sort of reality created. And one of the things about Last Tango in Paris, it was transgressive in lots of ways, But uh, in particular, I thought Maria Schneider, when I first saw that film, Maria Schneider herself seemed like a genuinely, uh, really not particularly secure young woman. And I think that one of the things that makes me most uncomfortable about that scene really is that there's a feeling of her edge, that she's on edge. And she's actually, when she started talking about it later, was uh, uh, it confirmed that she was uh, really uh, she was exploited? Simple as that. Right, and Bertolucci, and, Bertolucci himself has kind of uh, confirmed this uh, later. Let's uh, hear him. This is a, a clip that James uh, steered us towards. I think that she hated me and also Marlon because we didn't tell her that uh, there was this that detail of uh, the butter user as a lubricant um, and uh, I still feel very guilty for that. Do you regret the fact that you have shot the scene like you did? No, but I feel guilty. I feel guilty but I do not regret. You know, to make movies sometime, to obtain something, I think that uh, you have to be completely free. Uh, I didn't want Maria to act her humiliation, her rage. I wanted Maria to feel, not to act, the rage and the humiliation. Then she hated me for all life. One thing that we should be clear is, as far as anybody knows, this was acted out. In other words, the actual physical act was not engaged in. Nonetheless, if it's kind of sprung on you by surprise. So, James, I interrupted you. Finish your thought, and I want to hear from everybody else, too. 
Well, the, the thing that I, I, it makes, I, I'm immediately thinking about when I hear this, you know, how he's explaining it. He wants to have it both ways. You know, he wants to have the moral high ground, but he also wants to exploit. And exploit is, means that he's going to use Maria Schneider in this scene to get what he wants and to get the, 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 the exact reaction he wants. But I would say, supposing it had been the other way around and uh, it was Marlon Brando who was going to be presented with a little surprise, shall we say. And, you know, would he have said that? Would I mean, would we be having this conversation? I mean, would that film have been made at that point? I'm guessing uh, Deliverance came out that year that they gave Ned Beatty plenty of warning. Yes, uh, I was about to raise that, yeah. But what was going on? We don't know that. No, it's never been discussed. Yeah, I mean, Teresa, he's raising a question that does come up in the arts a lot. Although I I feel like sometimes we say, well, it was a different time, a different place. They had different standards. I don't know. I don't think this like really washes ever what he's talking about. No, I mean, what he's basically saying is uh, I did it for my art, right? Like it's okay to humiliate. And he's saying I didn't want her to act. I wanted her to actually be humiliated and filled with rage. And that's not okay for any reason really. And he certainly and James brings up the point like would he have done this to Marlon Brando and last night I was talking about this with my boyfriend this and he found this story of Marlon Brando refusing to learn his lines even for the movie and just putting right. postcards yes. around the room with them on <laughs> yeah. them and actually asking at one point if he could just write his lines on Maria Schneider's rear end hmm. which just you know speaks volumes about the kind of person he was and that she was just a prop for these guys in this movie. Bill? Yeah, I think it's really clear that there was a certain dynamic between Bertolucci and Brando that was that was their own kind of dynamic and Schneider was really just a visitor in their world mm-hmm. and they were going to do whatever they thought was necessary and she didn't have any voice in it whatsoever. I think it's important to put out there that Maria Schneider was a 19-year-old girl Mm -hmm. at the time that this happened. Um, You know, again, yes, there was no actual rape on the set, but there certainly was the humiliation of a young woman. And to fall – I don't know what's worse, (laughs) that they did it then or that Bertolucci more recently said that, oh, yes, it was a terrible, terrible thing, but I would do it again. Um, And then just to fall back on art. um, Yes, I do believe that art pushes us and makes us test boundaries and and, and go to to dark places. But to just use that as an excuse um, of of the utter humiliation of another human being, I really do think is 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 simply an excuse, and and there is no morality there that can be ascribed to. Well, this is just what artists have to do. I mean, James, there's like a whole history of directors subjecting actors to all kinds of stresses and strains. You know, often you know, just sort of physical discomfort in order to get certain effects. And and that probably will continue to go like, go go do this stunt, you know, yeah, something I, like that. But I mean, there's like, we're talking about a very different area here, right? I think that it, it, it crosses a different line, yes, because I think that there's always, as you point out, oh, there's always going to be the opportunity to do these kinds of things uh, in, in, in the setting of, in theater as well, actually. But the the point is that um, I think it is 
particularly bad where you're taking vulnerability and exploiting vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Somebody who's inexperienced, perhaps, or in, in, in the film industry, it's usually men with young women, uh, older men with young women. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you look at people like Pablo Picasso and his his behavior. And, um, you know, you're, you're also— or Hitchcock and Tippi Hedren right around the same that, time. I would, yes, I was going to say that. Uh, you, you know, you can look at um, uh, Marnie, for example, Hitchcock's Marnie. And, and, I mean, I find myself squirming when I'm watching that. But uh, Hitchcock was a sort of walking, talking compendium of dysfunction and exploitation. <laughs> And and yet he creates these films that is that 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 have a reputation for grabbing you and sort of like being thrillers, but also funny and wry and strange. But the the, the truth is that Hitchcock was a very kinky person, and he had a lot of money behind him, and he was successful at doing what he did. But you you listen to Tippi Hedren talk about what happened to her, and you think that art isn't worth that to be destroying somebody's sense of themselves mm -hmm. in, in, in the service of art. Uh, and I think that I look at, you know, I mean, frankly, if I, if, if I were to sit and watch um, uh, Last Tango in Paris now, I think I, it, it just wouldn't be the same. At the time that when I first saw it, it was transgressive and it was something exciting in the, in the uh, development of cinema itself. And Bertolucci is an extraordinary, was an extraordinary filmmaker, uh, but now I, I I don't think I could watch it the same way anymore. We have to shift gears a little bit right now or run out of time. Although I do want to say that, because um, this is never going to get on the air, I did an interview on stage recently with Richard Plepler, the head of HBO. One of the things we talked about is HBO now has hired permanently something called an intimacy coordinator. This started because of a show called The Deuce, uh, which has a fair amount of sort of simulated porn and stuff like that going on in it. Uh, and so there's somebody on the set uh, all the time for everything that they do that involves any kind of sex or nudity or anything like that. Uh, who, whose job it is to make sure that lines don't get crossed, that people aren't placed in uncomfortable positions, that actors and actresses, probably particularly actresses, are not forced or coerced in any way into doing things they're not comfortable with. I, I, we're living in a different age now. It doesn't mean these bad things uh, won't still happen, but there's more being done about this. Okay, so we do have to shift. And here I have to kind of declare a little bit of a conflict of interest. David Edelstein, the critic for Fresh Air, as well as CBS Sunday Morning, and New York Magazine is a very, very old friend of mine uh, and somebody who's been on the show a lot. Uh, he lost that Fresh Air gig this week because uh, he tweeted out um, kind of a joke. Uh, 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 so apropos of Bertolucci's death, uh, a little bit of a joke about the butter scene. Uh, and uh, we can talk a little bit about what that joke was and what he tried to do in terms of apologizing or walk it back. But I don't know, Bill, you, I know that you've been following this pretty closely and discussing it with people on social media. Maybe we just start with, with your overall take on it. Yeah, sure. I, I don't have any personal relationship with David Edelstein. I was a, uh, one of his Facebook friends, one of 2,000 you know, odd mm -hmm. Facebook friends. So I, I kind of saw this unfold in real time. I mm -hmm. saw the original post. And I and and when I saw the original post, I thought, "Wow! Like this is just like stupid. It's not funny. It it's 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 in really really bad taste." Right. Very, I said I said tweeted it was Facebook. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's very crass. Um, I was surprised uh, by it, mm -hmm. but then shortly after, I immediately saw that it was gone, and that David Edelstein had posted a very very sincere mea culpa and. 
I th- I saw it as completely held, heartfelt in terms of, wow, like I really messed up here. I can't believe I did this. This is shaking me to my core. And, y- you know, he said I had forgotten about, um, you know, all, all the stuff related to this. That I think is weird. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I don't know how, you know, a film critic, a film historian would that wouldn't have been at the top of their mind, but it was a mistake. And I I do think that in the wake of his apology and in the wake of it really just kind of being a momentary lapse of stupidity that parting ways with him as WHYY and Fresh Air have said was a complete and total overreaction on their part. And there's a huge difference between the stupid joke that David Edelstein told and the actions of uh, Brando and Bertolucci. And I don't think we should be conflating those as if they are all one and the same thing. Yeah. I don't know. Teresa, what's your take here? Well, unfortunately, my take is pretty similar to Bill's. Um, that, <laughs> that, uh, my, my feeling... So part of the conversation around this is whether or not this is actually even a scene that depicts rape, right? Mm. Which I find to be a very strange conversation because I had not seen this movie before. I went and sought out the scene specifically because we were going to be talking about it. And she is crying and saying no. If Mm. you can't figure out that that's a rape scene, there's something wrong. (laughs) There's something very wrong and someone needs to send you to a sensitivity file. Yeah, and I agree with that. But even – Knowing full well that this is a rape scene and even if he'd known the history of what Maria Schneider felt and said about this in in more recent years, um, it's still just a stupid joke. And I think we have to stop trying to take away people's jobs over dumb jokes because it breeds anger and resentment instead of using these moments to teach people. Like I'd much rather hear Terry Gross have a conversation with Edelstein about his experience about this than fire him over it. And I think part of this is this is now sort of the second or third time he's gotten himself in trouble by saying or writing something kind of that people took poorly. And so maybe they're just like, we don't want to keep going through this. So we're going to part ways with you. But, um, I'm just perturbed in general at the overall desire to take people's jobs away every time they mess up and to treat, as Bill said before, one sort of hashtag me too sin the same as every other one, right? Like, you know, what Louis C.K. did is not the same as what Bill Cosby did and what Bill Cosby did is not the same as what Bertolucci and Brando did. But for some reason, everybody sort of in the rare, except for in the Bill Cosby case where he actually gets prosecuted, everybody's suffering the same fate. Yeah. Yeah. James, you have yeah, I, I pretty much agree with that. I, I think it's kind of interestingly instructive about the sort of false intimacy of Facebook and online media generally that I, I mean, it's a stupid joke, certainly. There is this weirdness about how would in the in in David Edelstein's explanation about being a film person and not being aware of all the surroundings of this whole thing? Because certainly, as a film exhibitor, uh, I've been aware of it for a long time, and it's been popping up over and over again with statements from Maria Schneider and and and, and also Bertolucci himself. Um, but I think that somehow 
social media, uh, if you're going to deal with people's behavior and possibly, you know, transgressive behavior, I agree it's it's over the top to be saying, you know, fire the person right away. But it's an illustration really of the uh, dysfunction, I think, of social media where people uh, – you, you get the feeling that maybe, you know, this was a certain time of night when this popped up or something or he wasn't <laughs> fully aware yeah. or maybe what whatever and he puts down something that he might say to somebody in the room but then he puts it out in the social media setting where it suddenly becomes currency and and I don't think he's the only one who does that. I no. mean, I think there's a lot of people who do that. And I think it can be carried away at that point. And then you have to start picking up the pieces. And we are in a very reactive universe about all of this at the, uh, at the moment. And I think for good reason, actually, because very real exploitation has taken place. But it is absolutely essential to have some sort of sense of proportion about what people say and what they do and what they actually have been involved with. I think that's absolutely crucial. I, yeah. should, I should say that the, the posting was, and it was sort of by way of David commemorating uh, his his sadness about Bertolucci's death, but he did it with a joke, and he had a post that showed a picture uh, from that scene, a still from that scene, and it said, even grief goes better with butter. Um, and... I just want to say a couple of things about this. I mean, I'm not a particularly trustworthy source of commentary about this because David and I are very old friends and I would probably stick up for him almost no matter what. But um, but I do feel as though, you know, I, I look at Fresh Air. Fresh Air, like really, maybe more than any show on public radio, celebrates transgressive comedy. You can go on Amazon right now and buy some compilations of Terry Gross interviewing Don Rickles, you know, Richard Pryor, Sarah Silverman, Bill Maher. You know, these are like people she really likes a lot. She likes to talk about them. And these are people who what they do often is kind of test the limits. What what can you say? What can't you say? If you're Sarah Silverman, maybe you can say this. Bill Maher probably couldn't say that. Bill Maher certainly tries to say words that only Richard Pryor could say. Mm -hmm. But all of that kind of gets shaken out in, in this process of discourse. And so, you know, and, and I'm not saying that like a Adobe Facebook post is quite on the same level. But if you're going to like that kind of stuff but have a you know one strike and you're out rule for people who contribute to your show, I sort of wonder, you know, what's value set you're, you're honoring here? I just, you know, it was a dumb thing to post. But boy, if I got fired every time, I mean, Bill's seen me post a joke <laughs> in real time that I immediately had to take down because somebody didn't like it. And I thought, well, so oh, I shouldn't, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Look, if you could get fired for saying stupid things, I'd be living in Colin's spare room. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no question about that. I, I make a habit of doing that on a regular basis. And, well, apparently, I say if you could. Well, apparently under some circumstances you can. To me, this was very much a PR move um, and, and sort of virtual virtue signaling um, on the part of wh whoever it was, Fresh Air, WHYY. I think it opens up some interesting questions about who does make these decisions. Mm -hmm. Who was behind that decision? Was there a lawyer in the room? Um, was there some corporate executive in the room? And what, what really was the point of it and, and why – are they able to hold, in their mind, both ends of those ropes at the same time and promote transgressive comedians who aren't employed by them but then have these ridiculously tight limits on those who are employed by them? And how much of that is just a public relations strategy on their part that Edelstein got swept up in by being foolish? 
Yeah, I, I just, you know, I, I think Teresa raises a great point. Matt Damon tried to raise this point early in the Me Too movement, and he got in trouble for that, saying yeah. there needs to be proportionality. You kind of have to look, you know, how badly did anybody get hurt? Did any did anybody get hurt? You know, I would sort of argue in the case of Edelstein, nobody really got hurt here at all. In the case of Maria Schneider, it is clear somebody got hurt. Somebody got hurt real bad. So uh, I, I don't know. I mean, it's well, actually, we have to do a little segue here from here to Louis C.K. because we always have to talk about Louis C.K. <laughs> um, so it turns out that there is a French woman comedian uh, who has not only defended Louis C.K., but now been seen holding hands with him and like they might be an item or something like that. Um, but, I, you know, there's a way, James, in which – and so she's talked a little bit about this and she's she and some other prominent French women have brought all of this stuff, uh, stuff up in a very different way. Some might say a very French way, uh, you know, that they don't necessarily want to be as strictly monitored and they don't want men to be quite as strictly monitored or as severely punished for some of the things uh, that for which punishment is being meted out right now. Uh, I guess the best way of living out those principles is to date Louis C.K. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's it. Um, my feeling is that, well, I mean, for a start, America is a very litigious society, as we know. And so there's always lawyers waiting in the wings. And people who are public figures certainly have public relations advisors at hand who are trying to sort of uh, fix something that's gone wrong or they're trying to promote something that they see as good about whoever this is. And when there's been some sort of incident, there's a, there's the, your, the PR consultant is creating lots of noise to, uh, to mask that out. In France, things I think are very different in that um, I think that these these sort of situations play out with a kind of uh, a wink and a nod in a way that women – like for instance, French political figures, numerous French political figures have had transgressive relationships that in American terms would be the fodder of lots of pursuing journalists who would who would chase it down. In France, it's greeted with a shrug. OK, so so-and-so has a mistress or so-and-so is, you know, is, is fooling around with a number of guys, you know. So it's, it's seen as being, well, that's the human side of things and we'll just leave that alone. And that's a sort of societal attitude that, I mean, I can't conceive of a lawsuit, for example. Uh, I don't think I've ever read one uh, of a lawsuit of the kind that you would see here over issues like that happening in France. And so I think that it's greeted almost with the things I've read about this seem to greet it with an almost sort of amused aside that this is, you know, okay, that this is a much more sophisticated attitude kind of thing, that that's how, how people in France seem to see it. Yeah, so the woman's name, by the way, is Blanche Gardin, and she's done things like appear at an award ceremony with a button uh, wearing the uh, with a photo of Louis C.K. Uh, on it. Uh, I don't know, Teresa. We're right back where you started us. I mean, is that that whole question of you know what's the punishment? How do you live out the punishment? When are you pardoned? And and who gets to decide? And I, I mean, I think we would all agree Blanche Gardin ought to be free to make whatever choice she wants about Louis C.K. I, I do. I So of all of this, I find her choice to actually date Louis C.K. the most interesting of all because it's because I, you know, longtime listener of this show know that I was here yelling about Louis C.K. before he finally admitted to all his Me Too sins and that I was then on the show when it finally, you know, hit the news. And so 
But she sort of said very eloquently in this article about her the thing that I was trying to articulate and probably didn't do too well, which is that people love him for exploring the dark side of things and makes them feel better about their own dark side. But then when they found out he wasn't just joking all the time, they got surprised and now they're mad at him. And that's totally fine. The things he did were disgusting and he deserves some sort of punishment. But I also think... And then again, proportionality comes into this. And there've been there's been a lot of hubbub over the last couple of months about Louis C.K. daring to show up and do, you know, stand-up yeah. spots at unannounced at at the comedy cellar or wherever. And, you know, people get up and storm out because they didn't agree to see Louis C.K. And it's like, well, you didn't agree to see who anyone who showed up here tonight. Mm-hmm. Like, that's too bad. But I think if anyone has the ability to come back from one of these scandals, it's Louis C.K. in part because if he just did a really great set about this whole thing, people would go back to forgiving him. Which is the thing that he hasn't done so far. Exactly. Which a lot of comedians, we, we did have a conversation mm-hmm. about this on the news pretty recently. Well, Bill, you're going to get the last word on this one. Uh, Louis C.K. is a creepy little dude, and um, I kind of want Adonis Creed to punch him in the face. But having said that, don't fire me. Um, There are distinctions between his creepy behavior um, and like the the, the rapey kind of things he did. Mm -hmm. But he's – from what we know, he's not actually a rapist. I – I have really mixed feelings about the resurrection mm-hmm. of Louis C.K. On the one hand, like, should a should a should a venue be allowed to like have him appear? Sure, I, I think they probably should. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you know, Teresa said some people storm out, but other people welcome him as like some kind of like conquering hero. Yeah, and, and I and think he's the voice of freedom, yeah, and I think that's nonsense. I agree, <laughs> and 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 I think that some of those people actually are turned on by that particular trait of his behavior maybe literally and literally and and i think that that's a that's part of the issue as well yeah. well well we have to stop we can't talk about louis ck all day long although in fact the the parameters of this show could actually create that situation pretty easily or, or maybe he could anyway we have to take a break so we'll have time to talk about creed 2 And we're back uh, and probably on a sturdier and safer terrain now uh, with Teresa Kramer, uh, writer and editor at eContent Magazine, James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, Bill Usman, a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. So, yes, we went to the movies. I, I have to I have a confession to make. Like I, I basically cry – I cried like really hard at Creed 1 um, <laughs> and I cried at Creed 2 too and I tend to cry at movies like this. Uh, but we went to see Creed uh, 2 uh, which is an extension of an extension. It's an, an extension of, of the first Creed movie which starred Michael B. Jordan, was directed by Ryan Coogler and is an extension of the Rockies series. If you haven't paid attention, it's the story <laughs> – how can I do this? It's the story of the son of the character 
Apollo Creed, who is played by Carl Weathers, um, who is kind of discovered, uh, wants to be a boxer despite the fact that his dad died in the ring and so winds up with his dad's frenemy, Rocky Balboa, as his trainer. Uh, and so uh, here we are uh, with the second movie. Uh, Michael B. Jordan plays uh, Adonis, uh, who is the uh, son of Apollo Creed. Uh, and Tessa Thompson plays his uh, beloved, uh, Bianca. Uh, and um, they're talking about a situation where, I don't know, we don't want to give too much away, but things haven't gone too well in one of uh, Adonis's fights. And he's thinking maybe he still has to fight again. Why do it again? What do you have to prove? It's not about that. You wouldn't be any good to anybody if you didn't do what you love. You wouldn't be able to breathe, right? Well, I wouldn't be any good to anybody if I don't handle this the right way. But I need you. I'll beat him. You better. So, Teresa, we actually do know that it's possible to make a really bad movie with Michael B. Jordan in it running around doing physical stuff. That would be the Fantastic Four. Uh, but it's, <laughs> yeah. it's hard to make a bad movie with Michael B. Jordan kind of being doing what Michael B. Jordan can do anyway. I mean, he really is one of the most exciting and gifted uh, actors of his fairly young generation at this point. So, uh, and I know you're a big fan. So how did this work for you? Yeah, I mean, if you're incapable of being objective about David Edelstein, I am incapable of being objective about Michael <laughs> B. Jordan. Um, I, I liked this movie quite a bit. I liked Creed 1 a lot as well. And I've been thinking a lot about why I like sports movies but don't really like sports. And a part of it is, you know, um, the sheer drama of it. Everything is more exciting when there's a whole storyline and you get to be right in the middle of the action. But um, my, my – well, I – I'm I'm verklempt over here about Michael B. Jordan. Don't general. treat him as a yeah, sexual yeah. object, though, because that demeans him. Okay, I know, oh. but I mean, he is. Someone in our email threads said that he is both vulnerable and menacing at the same time. I think is, and he does. He has this perfect. Um, like ability about him while still being able to beat a giant Russian man to a pulp. You know, he. Spo- <laughs> spoiler. Maybe, I mean, if maybe, you go into maybe, the if maybe. you go into this movie thinking uh, Creed doesn't win something, so you don't understand sports movies. What? All right, but- so uh, yeah, I don't know about that. Well, anyway, so James, yeah, I'm not even sure. I know from all our emails what James's total overall take on this was. <laughs> well, I I really like Michael B. Jordan as well. I think that he's a he's a really is a gifted actor. That's a very good description of him. But I can't say that this movie really. Uh, I mean, he and Tessa Thompson have a kind of chemistry on screen, and that's interesting. But that's totally sort of a backstory, obviously, to what's going on. And uh, I found the rest of the movie kind of like had a lot of sort of stereotypical stuff, of course, and not a particularly uh, earth-shaking plot, really. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I ca- couldn't get out of my mind that the opponent in the ring, uh, his, <laughs> he was listed in the cast, has 
big nasty is yeah. <laughs> in the middle of his name. Right. And I thought, you know, okay, well, uh, all right. And he, I don't think he cracked a smile once in the. I don't movie. believe he's an actor. He's he's, an, he's he, a real boxer. Right. From, from yeah. Romania, he's a, bo- he's a boxer who's acting mm-hmm. as opposed to an actor That's who's right. boxing. That's right. But the the thing to me is what I really wish is that somebody with um, Jordan's talents. Why isn't he in a? Why isn't he getting better parts than that? I mean, I think that this is a commercial part, and he's going to make good money from it, and good luck to him. But I, I found myself thinking, wow, he could really do something. Really, uh, he could he could really do something with his career other than playing something like this. I think I have the answer to that, which is that in a recent profile I read about him, is that his goal is to basically be a matinee idol. He wants to be a I, movie. Uh, he, star full stop which means he's got to be in like the Bourne series or something. You know, right. he needs mm-hmm. a series yeah. like this. I think, yeah. I think we actually whole, found yeah. our next James Bond. Yeah. So uh, before Bill goes, let me just say, I should probably have uh, said a little bit more about this. It involves going through the sort of almost Greek mythology of, or maybe Italian mythology <laughs> of Rocky. So what you need to know is that in Rocky IV, uh, in Rocky IV, Apollo Creed, uh, the character played by Carl Weathers, this will be a spoiler if you haven't seen a Rocky IV, but that's not my problem. Um, he, he does fight a Russian boxer. Way back there in Rocky IV, he fights a Russian uh, boxer named Ivan Drago, uh, who kills in the ring Apollo Creed in a way that is a little bit Rocky's fault. He doesn't throw in the towel soon enough. He's he's the trainer uh, of his friend Apollo uh, Creed. Uh, and by the way, we're doing a show on towels next week. The producer of the show, the producer of that one, he wants you to know that. Anyway, um, and so, um, so yeah, so, uh, so then Rocky has to go to Russia and train and, and essentially revenge the death of his friend in this ring. So this is a continuation of that story. Dolph Lundgren, who played this character, uh, way back in Rocky IV, now plays the father of the unsmiling um, Victor Drago, uh, who is now going to basically, you know, have a similar kind of encounter with the son of Apollo Creed. There, Bill, I think I did it. Uh, great. Yeah. So we're done. Uh, see you next week, folks. Uh, I'll do a little bit of Teresa and a little bit of James, and then throw in some Bill at the end. Um, I totally am on board with. Teresa about like really just like what a wonderful actor Michael B. Jordan is and and I I really um, have loved almost everything he's done um, (laughs) barring Fantastic (laughs) Four sorry Um, um, but I but I am on board with with James in terms of um, I, I I don't think this is a really very good movie I don't think it's a really necessary movie I found it uh, ridiculously predictable and hackneyed and trite and plotting. It's it's a bad sign when I'm kind of waiting for the resolution that I know is coming just so that the movie can be over. And and that and that is how I felt. And I know I'm being like really harsh about it. I was not a big fan of the Rocky mythos and. You know, as, you know, I see racial politics and gender politics in everything, as people who have listened to the show before know. And I thought the racial politics and the gender politics of the Rocky films were very, very troubling. But I was interested in Creed One because of the way that it upended that. And the, the way they it, – it, it really did kind of shift the lens and shift the focus um, and, you know, putting putting the emphasis on – 
um, Adonis Creed, played by Michael B. Jordan, really tilted that for me in some very interesting ways. And I did like it, and I thought it was a very good movie. Creed too just just feels unnecessary to me, and I don't see it doing anything particularly original or interesting. And so it, it I, I know I'm being like a really harsh critic of it, but but it, it just did leave me kind of cold. Let me just say a few quick things about it. Uh, first of all, yes, yeah, directed by a different director. Ryan Coogler is a terrific director. Yes, he um, is. And uh, he directed Creed 1. He also directed Black Panther. I actually think Creed 1 is a better movie than Black Panther, but that's another conversation. Um, I, I, I do think with this one, he, he doesn't this younger, newer director, whose name is Stephen Capel Jr., doesn't seem to get quite the same. Doesn't have that same gift of, first of all, getting that quality out of Michael Jordan that you're talking mm-hmm. about. I didn't see it quite as often. That real combination of menace and vulnerability. Uh, when I saw it, it just it felt a little overdrawn and a little bit forced out. Uh, there's a bunch of other uh, interesting characters in this movie who never get developed. Brigitte Nielsen uh, is back uh, in several different respects uh, in, in this movie, but she is used almost entirely. As a prop, she was mm-hmm. the wife of Ivan Drago. Uh, there, the, the the wonderful actor who played Ivan Barksdale on The Wire is back, but it is in this movie kind of as the first trainer. I, I do want to say a couple of things about Sylvester Stallone. He has gravitated into the kinds of roles that were played by Burgess Meredith and Burt Young in those Rocky movies. He's a little bit the comic relief, a little bit the voice of elder wisdom. You know, he's he and he's actually pretty good. I mean, he got an Oscar nomination for the first one, whether that was merited, we could debate, but he's actually pretty good at that. That, And as Jonathan McPants pointed out, Dolph Lundgren is actually pretty good in this I, movie. <laughs> I honestly could not disagree more on that front. Okay. Like, I think, I don't have high expectations for a sports movie, so when the first Creed came along, I was like, wow, this is amazing. It exceeded all expectations. And then when the second one comes along and it's just good, that's fine by mm-hmm. me because... It's a sports movie. I don't mm-hmm. need it to do very much. But Dolph Lundgren in the scene where he comes into Rocky's restaurant, I could not have thought anything was more overacted than mm-hmm. – I, I mean – and Brigitte Nielsen is like – I was like, are they just – they don't want to pay her like something or <laughs> they, they don't want her to get well, a turns, SAG card again well, It turns out she was 54 years old and very pre- pregnant during the shooting. So she couldn't speak? Or I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they were Speaking would have cost extra. I, yeah. I honestly think they don't want to have to give her a SAG card or something, right. and so like they that, didn't yeah. let her speak. I don't. I don't it know. Was, what's going that on. was really strange. I thought yeah. she just is standing there. <laughs> okay. Well, I actually thought, um, and I said this in our emails, that all of the Russians to me actually looked like almost like science fiction robot yeah. villains yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah, the, I, I, the one thing that I would say about this that's kind of serious is I'm, I'm the person who hung around boxing in real life uh, a bit, and it's not a particularly nice place most of the time. But it's a very interesting place all the time, and it's a pretty interesting place without having these kind of supervillain type scenarios where so much is on the line. But starting with Rocky Three, where Mr. T was introduced as Clubber Lang, and then on to Ivan Drago, and now in this movie, you have these kinds of almost superhero stakes, mm-hmm. you know, where somebody's maybe probably going to die or it's just so bad. It's so scary. It can't just be boxing, you know. It, it's it's more than that. And and there's now I think there's almost no headroom under the ceiling. I mean, they just have gone so far out with the, the kind of extreme stakes. I, I don't know where they maneuver after that. So, uh, so I think our recommendation is maybe watch the first Creed if you've never seen it. Oh, definitely. Yes. Uh, but first Creed, really interesting. And then you can just decide whether you need to see another one. All and right. watch Friday Night Lights. And watch Friday Night Lights. My wife's favorite the la- TV show. The last two seasons. 
seasons, especially for your Michael B. Jordan right. picks. Yeah. Vince. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, and watch The Wire, too. All right. So yes. uh, speaking of recommendations, we'll make some after this. When does it end? Are we going to see a bunch of movies 20 years from now where Natasha Drago fights poor little Amara Creed? No, wait. Marty Drago, Victor's kid, gets Amara pregnant, and then they have a kid who fights the grandson of Mr. T's character, Clubber Lang. Can't we all just get along? Today's show is produced by Apollo McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish will fight a pet tuna belonging to Marvin Hagler in the Vatican in 2019. The part of Bill Curry was played by Burt Young. On Monday's show, does Donald Trump appeal to insecure men? And now, back to Colin. Yes. I mean, by the way, yes. Uh, (laughs) But uh, it's time to make some recommendations here. Uh, Let's see what Teresa Kramer has for us. Uh, I'm recommending a series from Radiolab called In the Know. It was a three-series podcast podcast. Part you can get it in the regular Radio Lab feed, feed, but it sort of explores gender relations and uh, the Me Too era from multiple sides, including ones you probably wouldn't expect. And I thought was really, really interesting and did a much better job of sort of injecting humanity and just you know human error back into this conversation and really exploring it from all sides. Oh, good mm-hmm. recommendation. All right, James, what have you got for us? Well, I just want to celebrate uh, Willimantic, which I, is my favorite place to go um, on Main Street, um, particularly businesses like Cafe Mantic. Uh, it was a wonderful, incredible menu there. And uh, the fish market who uh, – Oh, I know those people. They're great. They are amazing. <laughs> they they have such an incredible variety of, uh, of, of fish available, very fresh, delightful place to go. And there's also Not Only Juice, which is a wonderful sort of quick restaurant that's really good and you're making me crazy. It's really uh, a, a wonderful place to go. So I really celebrate that. The fish people, uh, he's a Giants fan and she's a Patriots fan. That's correct. The kind yes. of, oh, you actually knew that. I <laughs> yes. I would, I, I they, would... They've told me this. All right. Okay. <laughs> Something I've talked to them a lot about. All right, so uh, Bill Usman, what have you got for us? Um, so as part of the theme of uh, artists that we lost in 2018, uh, Dolores O'Riordan was the lead singer of The Cranberries, and she died under some really sad and tragic circumstances earlier in the year. Everybody knows about The Cranberries, uh, rightfully so, but I just want to endorse they've recently put out um, the 25th anniversary release of their first album, Everybody else is doing it, so why can't we? And uh, it's dedicated to the memory of Dolores O'Riordan. The original album, I think, is pretty close to being a perfect album. I, I, I just love this so much in so many ways. Warm, emotional, full-throated kind of um, rock music. And on the new release, the 25th anniversary uh, version, there's all kinds of extras, including their original debut EP and some rough versions of the songs. And it's really, really great. So what's the, the new compilation is called? Um, it's it, the same name as the debut. Okay. Everybody else is doing it, so why can't we? It's the 25th 
anniversary edition. Oh, cool. So uh, I'm going to quickly endorse a not particularly expensive a restaurant in Farmington, Connecticut, right next to Highland Park. It's called Mengetsu. It's sort of Japanese and Korean. I think it's more Korean than Japanese. And they've kind of taken a not particularly inter- interesting space and made it really interesting. My son and I were there last night. We had really good food. We're the only people in the restaurant, which is one of the reasons I'm endorsing it. But I think they are getting crowds there and stuff. And it's really – it's a nice place and they seem like nice people and there's kind of an open kitchen there. And it's uh, So Mangetsu in Farmington, right next to Highland Park and the post office. Um, so and I thought maybe also um, – I've got some other endorsements that I could do, but it might be fun just in the last couple of minutes, um, particularly since we have James here. Uh, we not only lost Bertolucci, but almost the same day, I think, Nicholas Rogue uh, also died. So um, first of all, James, I don't know. Is there a Bertolucci movie you would really recommend that people go see? I mean, I'll ask the other panelists too. But, uh, well, I, for me, the the uh, there are two. Uh, one, the very long, complete version of 1900, and the, also the six-hour one or the four-hour one. <laughs> the six-hour. The six-hour one. You get it. Yeah, we, which we have shown at Cine yeah. Studio actually on two Don't consecutive drink nights, I believe. You go see it. Right. Um, and then uh, also the Last Emperor, which I think is uh, was an extraordinary film, not only well made, but it also. He managed to get access to places in the Forbidden City, which had not been on film before. Um, but it's a it's an extraordinary work of art and uh, is an illustration of what an incredibly talented filmmaker he was. So I would I would pick those two films. Anybody else want to shout uh, out any of these? Oh, I would just throw out The Conformist just mm. because uh, yeah, would, about would, yeah. um, um, Italy under Mussolini and uh, just it. it it's relevance for today's times. It's you know I, in a future episode I want to um, have the panels uh, panel discuss uh, my brilliant friend, which is the new HBO adaptation of Elena Ferrante, which you know is sort of post World War II uh, Italy. There's a way in which you kind of continues some of those themes maybe. Um, I'm also thinking, thinking about Nicholas Roque. I happen to be a big fan. I think mm-hmm. if you haven't seen the movie Don't Look Now, there you have to go. You have to see it almost yeah. immediately. I mean, it really is an essential movie in a bunch of different ways. Although there's a love scene there that who knows, maybe it's really controversial and didn't ever look that way to me. But uh, Although it's a pretty amazing love scene. Uh, and Walkabout also, which is a terrific early movie with Jenny Agutter um, sort of lost in the Australian outback and getting help from an Aboriginal source. I don't know. Anybody want to do a Nicholas Rogue one too? Uh, the very, very, I think very, very strange, The Man Who Fell to Earth mm-hmm. with uh, David Bowie. Yeah. Yeah, I would say the man who fell to earth. But I, I think one of uh, my, uh, my most enduring favorites of his is Walkabout. Yeah, definitely, it's an extraordinary film and in 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 and and far ahead of its time. And a great uh, novel. Yes, yeah, that's based, true. That it was yeah. based on. Yeah. Right. Um, uh, we have like two or, two or three more seconds, so uh, um, Teresa and I will endorse the town of Montpelier, Vermont. Yes. I, I go up to Montreal whenever I get a chance, and you're always sort of wondering, where do I pull off the highway to maybe get a little lunch, go to the bathroom, get some gas, whatever? And boy, Montpelier is a nice little town, isn't it? It's a lovely size. Like it's, you know, not so tiny like Brattleboro, but not as huge as Burlington. It's like the perfect little Vermont size yeah. to actually see some stuff while you're and there's a good vibe somehow. Yeah. There's a nice mm-hmm. vibe. The people seem to be happy and creative and proud of their downtown and stuff like that. So Montpelier, Vermont. All right. We have to stop there other than to mention that another death from this week was the creator of SpongeBob SquarePants. Pants. His name was Steven Hillenberg. Died a young, 57, from ALS, a terrible disease. But uh, let's end with a little SpongeBob. Oh, who lives in a pineapple under the sea? Not a 
little nonsense be something you wish? Buzz, buzz, wear fish! Then drop on the deck and flop like a fish! Buzz, 